Well, what great singing this morning. If you will take your Bibles and open them, turn with me to Luke chapter 8. We're going to move right along in our study of the Gospel of Luke. As you're finding your place there, uh, I want to run a name by you and see if you know who I'm talking about. You ever heard of a guy named Samuel Clemens? He was an American writer. He was a humorist. He was an entrepreneur and publisher as well as a lecturer. And it's funny, I, I see some heads nodding. You know who I'm talking about. You're still in my thunder. Most of you would know the name for sure of Mark Twain. That was the pen name that Samuel Clemens went by. Uh, Mark Twain obviously wrote The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, books that more than likely you read as an elementary student. It was part of English or reading class as you were growing up. Uh, Mark Twain, as he became known, was born and raised on the banks of the Mississippi River, right there in Hannibal, Missouri, uh, north of St. Louis, an hour or so. He was quite the traveler during his adult life, both nationally and internationally, I believe, as well. One of his trips, he talks about an, a man that he encountered, a, a businessman. He was a ruthless businessman from Boston, and this man was quite the boaster. In fact, he boasted that no one had ever gotten in his way once he determined to do something. He was just this A-type personality, and it's going to be the way I want it to be, and I'm going to make the deal or close the deal. No one can say otherwise. And so this was quite a boaster. In fact, he even went on to say, before I die, I mean to make a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. I'm going to climb Mount Sinai, and when I'm up there, I'm going to read the Ten Commandments at the top of my voice, yelling it out before the Lord. Well, Mark Twain was a little... Um, probably annoyed by this gentleman, and definitely unimpressed. And he said this to him. He says, uh, why don't you stay in Boston and just keep the commandments? Well, he was known for his wit. He was known for his humor. And his response to this arrogant businessman for Boston was, for me, funny. But it highlights something that's more important than the humor. It highlights the importance of obedience. It's one thing to say something at the top of your lungs on the top of Mount Sinai. It's one thing to do that. It's quite another to actually live by what you're saying. And so it's good to hear. It's good to say the word of God. But as you read scripture and as I read scripture, what we see over and over again is not God's call for us to just hear. It's God's call for us to do. God is not commanding us to hear the word of God as much as he's commanding us to do the word of God. Now, doing requires us to hear, but God is not satisfied with us just simply hearing or saying he's wanting us to do and to put it into action within our lives. And so this morning, as we've seen all of these songs, I hope that your minds and I hope that your hearts have been stirred to move in the direction of not just hearing the word of God, but allowing it to soak deep into the recesses of your heart so that you now want to live it out in every facet of your life. Because this is what I believe. I don't believe that we would impress God one bit by climbing Mount Sinai where God actually gave the law to Moses and they're reading Exodus 20 at the top of our lungs and thinking that he's going to be impressed. God would not be impressed at all with that, but he will be impressed if you will decisively every single day commit to live out the very word of God that you're reading. See, God wants us to quietly and determinatively live in obedience right where we are today. 
When you think about obedience, like much of the Christian life, it is a conscious decision. You know, over the last few years, I've made a statement periodically, and it's something like this. If you want to walk with Jesus, that takes a determinative, conscious decision. In other words, you're not going to fall into discipleship. You're not going to just wake up one morning and be a fully developed follower of Jesus Christ. No, it's going to take you deliberately deciding to follow Jesus Christ. It's going to take you deciding to read your Bible and and to apply what you're reading to your life. It's going to take you determinatively making the commitment to to walk that out in your life, that you're going to be generous, that you're going to be gracious, that you're going to be a part of the body of Christ. You have to decide to follow Jesus. The believer's never going to fall into obedience. Why is that? It's because the opposite most likely is going to take place. We all, because of our sinful nature, have this default position of walking in opposition to the Lord, not walking with the Lord. You ever found that to be a battle in your life? That the more you want to walk with Jesus, the more you feel like you've got this ball and chain dragging behind you because the sin that you want to leave is always there? It's always this presence in your life that you want to get rid of, but it's it's dragging along behind you. Why is that? It's because that's your default position that you're living with. The sinful nature is still a part of our lives. We always default back to walking in opposition to the Lord. And so while this is true, the command from God is to obey in all things. And it's been this way from the very beginning. And yet, think about this, God never forces us to obey. You realize that? Now, I believe he will create circumstances in your life and allow the sin choices that you make to to well up against you, to to try to move you in a certain direction, to, to bring you to a place of obedience and conformance to his will. But God never comes and makes that decision for you. But man, would that be so much simpler. And it would be a whole lot safer if God would choose for us every right decision that we need to make. Now, we would be robots in that point, and we would have no freedom of choice, but our lives would be perfect, our lives would be holy, and our lives would be full of his goodness and his blessing and his safety. But God doesn't do that. Instead, he allows us to make our own choice and to decide for ourselves which direction we're going to walk. And unfortunately, even though we want to move this way, there's always this gravitational pull for us to move away from the Lord, which requires of us vigilance and a decisive active obedience to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so as we move into this next pericope, this next grouping of verses in Luke's gospel, Jesus here is is addressing or speaking about what I want to call active obedience in the Christian life. And so if you've got your place, Luke chapter 8, let's begin reading in verse 19. Luke says, Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But Jesus answered them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. These are interesting verses here in Luke's gospel. 
In fact, I would say that these are some of the most difficult verses to understand in the Gospel of Luke, perhaps even in the entire New Testament. And the reason I believe that's the case is because as you read there in verse 21, Jesus says, my brothers, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. We hear those words and we are absolutely shocked. How could you say that to your mama, right? Boy, don't you know how to do better than that? I mean, that's what we're thinking here. Jesus, you're sinless. Jesus, you're God. Jesus, you know everything and, and, and how to do everything right and good, and yet you just backtalked your mama. Or did he? We're going to get into that this morning. But these are difficult verses to understand because of the shock that we feel from what Jesus says here. Because as they're asking for him, Immediately, he responds saying, no, no, no. My mother and my brothers are those who hear and those who do. We would think this sounds dismissive of his family. And we would think that because Luke gives us really no context for these verses. Uh, we, we see this story, we see this setting in two other Gospels. Matthew gives us probably the proper chronological order that this story fits in. Again, I've told you before that the Gospel writers are not writing a history in chronological order for us necessarily. That's not their purpose. Matthew gives a pretty good chronological. Mark gives us uh, mostly chronological, but it's not always fitting that for his purposes. Luke is just taking stories and fitting the theme he's trying to help us understand and to learn about Jesus. So as we read in Matthew, he's helping us understand chronologically where this story fits. Mark is taking it and he relates it, not necessarily chronological, but he relates it to the account of Beelzebub. When, when people were accusing Jesus of being uh, the pawn of Beelzebub, right? And so he also points to the fact that in that setting, that his family were getting a little perturbed about his actions. They misunderstood what he was doing and why he was doing it. And so he gives us the idea that because of Jesus being misunderstood, his family comes basically to rescue Jesus. Jesus, um, let's... Let's do a little side huddle here, and let's talk about what you're saying, about what you're doing, because you're kind of an embarrassment to us. People are misunderstanding you. That's sort of the sentiment we get from Mark's gospel there, that they're there to rescue Jesus because of his misunderstanding within the people, definitely the Pharisees. And so Luke gives us no context. He just throws these three verses in, but it really fits the theme of revelation and response that we've seen already in this chapter. Remember, Jesus is traveling through towns and villages and preaching the kingdom. And then we see the, the teaching on the soils and how people will hear the word of God. They're going to respond in various ways. Many of them will not respond in faith, that's the crusty, that's the callous, that's the crowded soils. But some will respond in a capable way, capable of faith. That's that good soil. And then last week we saw there that the word of God is put up on a pedestal. It's the light. And so we are to respond to the light, the revelation that God gives us. And so these verses here fit within the theme of Luke chapter 8. So trying to understand what Jesus is saying here, before we equate Jesus' statement about who his family is to how his family responded to his teaching and actions, I believe it's important that we understand that the remark here is not a repudiation of family. 
And so Jesus is not back-talking his mama. That would kind of be sin, right? I mean, that's the way I grew up. If I back-talked my mama, that's sin because, and I knew it was sin because the fly swatter was coming back or coming out or maybe a little hand swat, I don't know, was coming. So I always knew I was in the wrong. Instead, Jesus is, is endorsing and exhorting his disciples to be receptive to the word of God. He's making a statement here about how we're to respond to the word of God, not just in hearing, but in our doing. So we are to receive the word of God. This is a rhetorical contrast that he's laying out. Jesus' family here are to receive God's word. This reception is more than just the hearing, as I've said. It involves the doing of the word that has been heard. So he's calling for active obedience. What the Lord doesn't want in your Christian life is for you to just fill up with his word and never actually put it to action. That's called spiritual obesity. Obesity. That's not what we're to be. We're to take it in and we're to put it to work. We're to live it out. This combination of hearing and doing has already been expressed in, in Luke chapter 6, verses 47 and 49, where he talks about how we're to do what we're hearing. So as we think about this, those of us who only hear but do not do, can we say that we're part of Jesus' family? I don't think so, based upon what the Lord is saying here in this statement. And so Jesus makes it clear that reception of his word is never confined, it's never limited to a mere intellectual recognition or agreement. Let me say it a different way. Jesus does not call his disciples to nod their heads. He doesn't call his disciples to amen everything he says without any plans to implement them into action. And yet this is what happens every Sunday or every time we open our Bibles in a lot of Christian homes and a lot of churches. Man, that's awesome, Pastor. Amen to what's being said there. I love what I'm reading here in the Bible, but we say that and we do that without any intention, intention of walking it out in our lives. And so Jesus is calling for us to have active obedience in our lives. And he says, that's who my family is. Those who will hear my word and do my word, those are my family. I love what Daryl Bach in his commentary on Luke says. He says, Jesus doesn't want scribes. He wants servants. He doesn't want somebody who can tell me everything about the word of God, but he has no application for his own personal life from the word. He wants servants who are not only hearing it, but man, living it and doing it. As I read these verses here and this whole scenario, I find it fascinating. So let me give you a little backstory on what's taking place here and what would later take place, which I find fascinating. So in this scenario, Luke tells us that Jesus' mother, so Mary and Jesus' brothers, other gospel writers tell us that their sisters, his sisters came his way as well. So we can say this, mom and siblings have come to see Jesus as he's there teaching and ministering to the people. They're there probably to rescue him because of how he's being misunderstood. And Jesus responds to the messenger that has been sent in, probably to a house, saying, hey, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. So this messenger comes back to Mary and his siblings. And can you imagine how that messenger is relaying the message? Um, Miss Mary, kind of shuffling his feet. Uh, I delivered the message that you sent with me to them. And I told Jesus that you guys were out here. And uh, he said he's not coming. 
yeah, uh, your, your oldest son said he's not coming. Um, in fact, it wasn't just that he's not coming. He was kind of dismissive about you. In fact, he even made this statement that I really don't understand, but I'm just going to relay it to you. He says, my mom and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. So I don't know what to do with that, but I'm laying in your lap. Jesus isn't coming. Have a good day. And he walks off. That's kind of what I envision in this scenario as Jesus is dismissing his family's request to see him. So James, church history tells us, is the half-brother of Jesus. That's the James that writes the little epistle at the back of your New Testament, five-chapter book, very practical book on how to live the Christian life. This is Jesus's half-brother. So he's, they share the same mom. Jesus's dad is the heavenly father. That's why they're half-brothers. You know the whole gig there. And so James, we don't know definitively if he was there in this situation or not, but I believe it's safe to say that James was a part of the brothers who were there to see Jesus in this situation. And if you're with Mary and you're the brother, perhaps you're the oldest brother outside of Jesus, and you hear such a dismissive statement coming from your brother, it's almost like you've been slapped in the face. So I envision James being offended by this. Take that on top of the fact that Church history, and I would say 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that none of Jesus' disciples believed in him as Lord and Savior until after they saw him in the resurrection, okay? So at this point, Jesus to them is a, a brother that's kind of weird, right? He's misunderstood. He's saying weird things. He's saying like, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't be a part of me. You can't follow me. I mean, he's making statements that are just strange and they don't get it. And so at this point, he's offended. He's, mis he's being misunderstood or, or James is misunderstanding uh, Jesus. And so this is a slap in his face. Then all of a sudden, after Jesus is crucified, he's resurrected, and James's eyes are open with faith. Now, everything changes for him. So much so that when James writes his letter, his epistle, he says in James 1, 22 through 25, that we need to not just be hearers of the word of God, we need to be doers. And if we're not a doer of the word of God, we're like the person who looks at his face in the mirror and then after turning away forgets what he looks like. He's, the point he's making there is if we're just hearing the word of God and never putting it into application, then we are very much to be pitied in our Christian life. We're a fake Christian. That's what James is saying here. How could James say that in James 1 when earlier in Luke 8, he's one of the siblings who are offended by this response? It's because he got to a place in his life where his eyes couldn't see everything, but his heart through faith could believe in Jesus, and he was changed, and he himself began to live out the very word of God in his life. Church history tells us that James became the pastor there in the church in Jerusalem. He was one of the great leaders of the church in its infancy, all because of his encounter with Jesus. You see, those of us who would call ourselves believers and followers of Jesus Christ should exemplify this type of active obedience in our own Christians' lives. We should actively be hearing. We should actively be doing. If one is not hearing and one is not doing, can we actually say we are a follower of Jesus Christ? I believe the answer to that question is a resounding no, but I want us to take a deeper look at these verses this morning. 
Three things I want to say about active obedience. Number one, active obedience redefines one's loyalty. Jesus said in verse 21, my, bro- my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. So our Lord here makes clear that his loyalty was first and foremost with God and with those who hear and obey God. My mother and brothers are those who hear and do. That's who his family is. Family is a big deal in the Jewish culture. It's a big deal in the Jewish culture today. It's a perhaps even a bigger deal in the Jewish culture back when this was written, when these things were taking place. Family was tied to everything in the life of a Jew. Let me give you just two examples of that. First of all would be land. As you read the Old Testament, land was tied to family. You read the book of Joshua, and Joshua replaces Moses. He conquests the promised land. And once they conquested all the land, then they begin to divide it up. How did they divide it up? Tribes. Twelve tribes of Israel were allotted twelve sections of land. And so you have these large land masses given to the 12 tribes of Israel. And within those 12 tribes, the, each individual portion of land was also subdivided. How? According to families. And so you had this family who got allotment of land, and this family who got allotment of land, and this family who got allotment of land. And all of that land that they were given to these family heads within the tribe was always to remain within the family. Even on extreme cases where a family would fall into hard times and have to sell some land, the Word of God built into the whole system that the land was to be sold, but at the year of Jubilee, it would be given back to the family. Land was connected to family. Here's a second illustration. That's marriage. Many, if not most, of the marriages in that culture in that day were arranged marriages. Now, we have no concept of this. The idea of a marriage being arranged as a dad of girls sounds pretty good, actually. That means I get to choose who that dude's going to be. But we don't practice it in America today. But they did, and they do in many places around the world today. Back then, this is the way they did it. And so they would arrange the marriages. The parents would pick out who's going to marry who. But the main point I want to make in that is when the bride married the groom, where did they live? In his daddy's home. They moved back into daddy, especially the oldest son. And so this patriarchal system was built around family. And so the bride would move in with her groom, and they would live in daddy's estate, and they would serve on daddy's land, and family was a big deal, loyal to the family. So as we think about what that means for us, as we think about what it means to walk with God and obey God, loyalty is something that's redefined in our life by the Word of God and obedience to the Word of God. Of God. So here, as we read that Jesus' mothers and brothers came to see him, it is shocking that he did not immediately move to see them, thinking about how important family was in that culture. His response, yet, shows us that when believers are actively walking in obedience with God, what does it do? It redefines our loyalties. It doesn't mean we hate our family. But it does mean that I have a higher loyalty in my life. I have someone who is more preeminent in, 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 my, 
and, and my affinities and my love and my commitments. So my preeminent loyalty is no longer to blood kin in my life. What Jesus is saying here is my preeminent loyalty is to God and his word and those of the people of God who are walking in that obedience. That's what Jesus is saying. My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do the word of God. Active obedience to the word of God actually creates in the life of a Christian a higher loyalty, think about this, than his closest earthly relationship. New Testament authors would flesh this out even more in the area of marriage, talking about how a woman is to uh, 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 submit unto her husband, but if that husband, and, and to live in such a way, if he's not an unbeliever, if he's a believer, an unbeliever, she's to live in such a way to serve him and to, and, and to walk closely with him, even as a believer, but if he were to command or require her to do something outside of the, the commands of God, she is free to break her loyalty to the husband or commitment to follow his leadership because she has a higher loyalty, that being the word of God, that points her to the person of God. So it's active obedience that calls us to hear and to do, and it redefines our loyalty. Secondly, active obedience recognizes a shared commonality. Jesus says, my mother, my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. So as Jesus points out, that there is a greater father to whom we owe the highest loyalty. This redefining of our loyalties binds us together with others who also have had their loyalties redefined by active obedience. And so what we see is the church of Jesus Christ is on full display. And what makes up the church of Jesus Christ? A bunch of different people. And if we look around just the makeup of our church, what do we see here? Different genders male and female. We see different ages, young to old, different educational levels, some who may have not graduated high school, some who have doctoral degrees, and everything in between of that. What do we see? Different economic levels. Some are at high capacity uh, type of jobs. Some are at low capacity. Some have no jobs. We see everything within the spectrum of economic things. We see all kinds of different aspects of the church universal as far as ethnicities and languages and places of the world. All of that is under the umbrella of the local church. So when we think about who the church is made up of, we see all of these dividing factors, and yet the church is unified. What unifies the church? Jesus Christ and our commitment to follow him. And so as my loyalties are redefined because I want to follow, not just hear the word of God, but I want to follow the word of God in my life, I'm looking around and I see that there's other people who are just like me who want to follow the word of God, who hear it and want to do it. And so we have this commonality that binds us together within the local church. So I see other followers who are walking in active obedience to the Lord, and I'm attracted to them, and they're attracted to me, and we begin to travel down this path of intimacy and power with Jesus, and we don't want to leave it. You want to travel that path. You don't want to veer off, and so you're walking together and living together, and this is the reason why we see in churches, strong churches and weak churches. What we see in a strong church is a commitment, a people who are committed to one another, committed to the Word of God, and committed to evangelism, and committed to church discipline, and we're moving together as we walk in active obedience. What we see in a weak church is a church that's maybe we have 
give lip service to the word of God, but we're not believing it, which means we're not doing it. We're maybe hearing it, or perhaps we've even replaced it. But there's no commitment there whatsoever to hear and to do. And so this morning, as you think about your own walk with Jesus, what is your shared commonality with other believers? Here's what I... Here's what I see too often in the American church today. Church is just another event. Church is just something I attend. It's not a people I belong to. And we're not maybe like that so much, and I'm grateful to God for that, that we have a sense of community here at Red Lane where, where by and large, we don't see church as an event to attend, but we see it as a people to belong to. But we got a long ways to go in that where we understand our commonality, we understand what binds us together, and we're moving together, hearing and doing the Word of God, allowing it to redefine our relationships and our priorities and the loyalties that we have. So active obedience recognizes this shared commonality. There's a third thing that I see here. Active obedience refines the concept of family. Again, he says, my mother and my brothers, family. I love family, don't you? Uh, some of you have lot, lot, if not most of your family in this church, and so you get the double whammy. You've got blood kin here, and you've got spiritual kin here, and so you love life. Some of you are like Kara and I and our family. We, we're transplants. You know, I'm, she's from Georgia. I'm from Arkansas. We came here from Alabama. We've lived in other places around the southeast. We're like a microcosm of all kinds of weirdness, just <laughs> dropped in here to Powhatan, as some people that are not from here say, right? Powhatan. I love when you get a phone call and they try to say what, what our county name is, and you're like, I obviously know you're not from here. Um, Palatine. Family. The Word of God does wonderful things for us. One of the things it does is it forges new bonds and new affections, listen to this, that only our natural families symbolize and point to. You say... Do you mean as the Christian, the Christian life is, is more about my spiritual family than my physical family? That's exactly what I'm saying. And we need to understand that. It's not being dismissive of family. I love family. I got, Karen and I got to go home back to Arkansas, home for me, for the first time in a long time this summer. Got to spend two full weeks with, with family and seeing aunts and uncles and cousins and their kids that I've only seen on Facebook and, and just kind of catching up with people because it's been so long and we're so far away from it. I love family. But you know what I love more than my earthly family? This right here. Spiritual family. Because who am I going to spend the rest of eternity with? My blood kin? Some of them because they're followers of Jesus, but not all of them. But who am I going to get to spend all of eternity with? Spiritual family. Those of us who have a better blood kin relationship. It's the blood of the lamb who's been shed for the sins of the world. And so the word of God, as we follow it, hearing it and doing it, forms this new bond and new affections that are much greater than that which we experience in our earthly families. This bond is directly related to this common loyalty shared among the members of the local church. And this is often very much misunderstood. I heard about a young Christian couple with young children uh, who lived a few hundred miles away from their uh, families, places where they grew up. <clears throat> 
They had moved away after college for work, and, and God had established them in a great job. And they're, 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 they're earning good living. They're being uh, moved up the chain of command there in the workplace, and things are going great. But more than that, God in this new city uh, led them to a gospel-centered, Bible-preaching church where they got plugged in and began to be discipled, Right? So they're getting more and more involved in their church. They're beginning to serve in, in more and more ways. And so they love their church family. They're growing with their church family. They're serving with their church family. And so they love to go home as much as they could. But the more they got involved in their church family, the less they traveled back home. What do you think mama and daddy began to think about that? One particular day... Got talking, one of the mamas of the families got to talking to this couple, and because they had stopped coming home for Christmas, and that was kind of a big deal. It's, it's one thing to not come home for birthdays, or not come home for Fourth of July, or, or maybe not come home for uh, Memorial Day, or something like that, but it's a big deal when you don't go home for Christmas. And so they'd missed a couple Christmases because they'd rather stay where they live and be able to celebrate the Lord and serve the Lord uh, in the Christmas season with their church family. And so one of the mamas says, you know what? It feels like you love your church friends more than you love your family. And that stung. That hurt. It wasn't true. It was just a different affection. It was a different love. It was, it was not necessarily divided, but they had love for both. And because they'd planted their lives in this city and because they'd planted their lives in this church and they're living day in and day out with these people, they wanted to be with them on one of the biggest, most important seasons of the year. And so they tried to share this with their family members and share this with their mama. But there was a grand misunderstanding because they did not see it the way they saw it. But as they actively were obeying and following the word of God with others who were doing the same, what happened was this supernatural refining of what family is. And it became their local church. And I'm not here on this stage to tell you that you need to drop all your relationships and say, I don't care about my family because the word of God would tell you otherwise. Especially if you're maybe an oldest uh, son or daughter of your family. I believe there's some responsibilities on your parents or towards your parents as you get older that we're to take care of mama and daddy, right? There's some responsibilities we should never shy away from, but we need to also understand that as a follower of Jesus that's been placed in a local church, I'm not just here to show up on Sunday and, and kind of... A, a spectate. No, I'm here to be a part of the body life of the local church because this is my brother's and my sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that? That we are here to hear the word of God and do the word of God together as followers of Jesus Christ. And what happens is we're seeking that is that we will supernaturally gravitate toward other people who just like us are committed to hearing and to doing. It's not that they didn't love mama and daddy anymore. It's just that they had different affections. Brothers and sisters in Jesus were helping them to walk with the Lord, and they were also helping their friends and families in the church do the same, but they weren't getting that at home. And so the affection is here, the love is here, the commitment's here, the loyalties is here in the local churches. You're walking with Christ together. And you know when God is, you know God is working in your heart, in your life, when you share a stronger bond with brothers and sisters in the church 
who are actively walking with Christ than you do your blood relatives who do not believe or even obey. And so this morning, how has God's word refined your concept of family? I want you to please hear me this morning. Don't go out and quote me or tweet about me or send me an email saying, Pastor said that we, we don't need any ties with family more. Man, if you say that, you didn't hear anything I said. What I'm calling for and what I believe the Word of God is calling for is, number one, that you as an individual Christian, that you hear the Word of God and commit to the Word of God, to do it, and that you partner with others. That's what the church is all about. And you allow the word of God and your commitment to it to refine your relationships in such a way that you're walking together in this. Man, you can't live the Christian life alone. I was just walking through our connections class with some folks that have been attending for some time. We were just talking about this concept of individualism. How, number one, it's, it's the offspring of sin in our life. That we would think that we can do things on our own that we don't need God is ultimately where it goes back to. And then we couple that with the fact that we are Americans and we always think that we can do stuff on our own. We don't need someone else. But in fact, you do need someone else. You need other brothers and sisters in Christ, walking alongside you, speaking affirmative words to you, and at times when needed, even rebuking you when you're in sin. And so Jesus' mother and his siblings were just trying to understand his actions. Jesus, as you read through the Gospels, it's clear he was unconventional in everything he did. And as such, his teaching and his behaviors were causing uh, quite the stir. It even led him to the cross. He shined the spotlight on religious, passive hypocrisy. And instead, he called for relational, active obedience. In John 14, 15, he said something like this. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so he ties our relationship to himself, not to a religious, hypocritical, yeah, I believe in Jesus type of statement, but he ties it to relation. He says, if you love me, you will hear and do. And the people in his day couldn't get that. And so for us, active obedience is exactly what Mark Train was calling for from this businessman from Boston. Active obedience is what we need today in the local church. It's a whole lot easier, however, to appear religious, to go through the motions. It's much easier to climb to the top of Mount Sinai, for instance, and yell out the Ten Commandments. But what good does that do? Jesus would rather you, the quietness of your life, right where he has you placed, just to live those things out. That's what he wants you to do. And live them out in community. So how would Jesus this morning regard the actions of your life? I want you to think about that statement. Wherever you're at in your walk with Jesus, or maybe the lack thereof, what would Jesus say in regard to how you're actively living your life? This statement here in these verses makes it clear that reception of his word is never confined. It's never limited to a mere intellectual recognition or agreement. He's not asking for you to amen and yet not apply it. No, Jesus wants servants, not scribes. Man, it's good that you can quote scripture. David tells us in Psalm 119, how can a man keep his way pure? By hiding God's word in our heart. So it's important that we know the word of God, but we need to know it so that we can do it, right? So how would Jesus evaluate and assess the actions 
of your life? Are you actively obeying his word? Or do you hear without obedience? Has God's word and your obedience refined your loyalties? Has it recognized uh, the commonality that you have with other believers who are doing the same thing? Is it beginning to refine your idea of what family is? I don't know what the Lord will be putting in your heart, but he's putting something there. He's putting something there. And so this morning, what is the next step that you need to take? Perhaps for some of you, the next step is the very first step for you to say yes to Jesus as Lord and Savior because you have never done that. You might have been in church your entire life, off and on or every single Sunday, but you've never said yes to Jesus. You see, when I gave my life to Christ at the age of 18, I could lead someone to faith in Christ. I could probably, I was teaching Sunday school at the time. I was a a seventh grade boys uh, small group leader in the student ministry of my church, but uh, I was not a Christian. You know you're a better small group leader when you're a follower of Jesus? Do you know that? (laughs) It is. You are. You is. Arkansas education. (laughs) Or is it? Stuff I picked up in Virginia. I don't know. It could be. Could be. But this morning, for those of you in this room watching us online, you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus. What would hinder you from doing that this morning? Jesus would say, come to me. He would say, hear what I've said and act on it, right? You've heard the message of the cross. You've heard why I came, that I, John 3, 16, love the world so much that I've given myself, that whosoever would, would come, whosoever would believe on me should not have eternal punishment, but eternal life, right? Isn't that what John three sixteen is pointing us to? And so you know the gospel. You've heard the gospel. Now act on the gospel. What would prevent you from this morning from doing that? We're going to have a time of response in just a moment. I'm going to ask you in that moment, if that's you, you respond by coming down and saying, Pastor, I need to give my life to Jesus today. I'm going to pray with you. I'm going to pass you off with one of our other elders or one of our uh, 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 encouragers. They're going to take you out, share the gospel more thoroughly, pray with you and help you make that decision that you need to make today. Most of you in this room are believers. And so is the Lord speaking to you? If so, these steps are like an altar unto the Lord for you this morning. If you need somebody to pray with, you come. I'll pray with you. Pass you off to someone else. We want to pray. We want to follow the Lord. Whatever he's put in our hearts, what we want to do this morning is have active obedience so that we just don't hear, but we also do. Man, we need more of that in the church today. Active obedience. So let's pray. Trevor, you come. Lord Jesus, we're grateful for these words that you've given us. They're shocking. They're hard to understand. It's hard to even imagine how someone could uh, seem to dismiss family. And yet, there's a greater point that you're making. There's there's a call here for us to hear the Word of God and to do the Word of God. And that's really what it means to be in the family of God. Father, I pray for every Christian in this room this morning, every Christian watching us, every Christian who will watch us in the days ahead, that, Lord, our hearts would be drawn to active obedience in our lives. That our ears would be open, that we would hear. That's what you're saying in, in Luke chapter 6, that we would have ears to hear. You said it in earlier in chapter 8, that we would have ears to hear. But God, we, us, we also want to do. We want to hear and then put into action. And so help us to do that. Help us, Lord, to understand that 
our greatest loyalty is to the Father and the Son and to the Spirit. Our greatest loyalty is to walk in obedience to the Godhead. It's to understand that we're not here to walk and to live the Christian life on our own, but you're calling others to, to live this Christian life. And so we see that commonality and we walk in step with one another, hearing and doing. And Lord, in that we see that our idea of family is refi refined. It's not just my earthly kin, but I have spiritual kin that I'm going to live for all of eternity with. So God, that elevates the importance of the local church. God, I pray you would help us to see afresh and anew the, the, the blessing and the gift that the local church is. So, Lord, for those who need to stop spectating and begin participating, I pray you drive that home this morning. Maybe there would be a time of just personal repentance on their behalf where they just say, Lord, this is the way I viewed it, this is what I've done, and it's wrong, and I turn from it in Jesus' name. But Father, I pray for those this morning young, old, teenager, child, that today they need to give their life to Jesus. I pray that would be the decision that they make this morning. Give us eyes that can see, a heart that is receptive, and the ability to faith into you this morning, whatever the calling is. We want to say yes. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name. Let's stand to our feet. We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.